Welcome to a very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is Emmalyn Shaw, managing partner at Flourish Ventures. Flourish is a venture firm that's focused specifically on investing in companies that help people across the world achieve financial health and prosperity. Flourish has invested in previous guests on For Fintech's Sake like Propel, Hummingbird, and Alloy. It's a seriously impressive portfolio when you dig into it. Speaking of impressive, Emma Lynn. She has led a fascinating life and now she's doing great things for the world at Flourish. We'll dig into her background, how she got into venture, and even dive deep into the Flourish thesis. Now, this episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by VSUM. VSUM is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack, hence the name, of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at vsum.com. Actually, v-sum.com. If you Google VSUM, you'll get there. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Emmalyn Shaw. Emmalyn, welcome to For Fintech's Sake. It's so good to reconnect. It's been, what, something like two years since we met at South by Southwest when Flourish was hosting a panel, and I think it was a pitch competition. I got to meet a bunch of people that day, and luckily you were one of them. But since then, I've been following your work at Flourish, and I've just been really excited to have this conversation and get to actually like sit down and learn more about you. So let's go to that. But first, you just came straight off of a board meeting. So I want to just ask, how's the day going in the life of a VC jumping from board meeting to podcast to board meeting to everything else? How you doing? You know what? It's it's going well. I, I have a lot more empathy for, you know, our companies that are running these businesses, trying to do it remotely during a pandemic and just trying to be like supportive and try to give the right advice and be accessible. I think for me, that's really been more of our focus and, and to make sure that we can do it with integrity and availability. So it's been crazy ride, but certainly a crazy ride for not only the companies that we back, but obviously the consumers and SMEs who are relying on the technology. And crazy ride for everybody. It's just yeah. a crazy. It's just a crazy time to be alive in general. I think no matter <laughs> no matter what seat you're sitting in, leading, not leading, working in the service industry, like it's all just. It's a very unique time, I think. For sure. And then, of course, like everything, we've all got life. We've got families, we've got kids, we've got dogs, we've got craziness. I missed the chaos, which is also a beautiful thing, but something to also balance through all this. So it keeps life in perspective, if nothing else. <laughs> we get to we get to remember what matters and it forces us to spend time on the things that really do really do provide joy and such in life. So Going back, before we get into Flourish and get into kind of some more recent things in life, I'm fascinated by kind of the early days of your world or of your life, I should say more accurately. So tell me about your youth, like growing up, what was that experience like? Kind of where where were you geographically? Was there anything about that experience growing up that you think kind of led to this wild world of venture that you live in today? Yes. No. Um, maybe just for some context. So my, my parents, uh, they grew up in the Philippines and they came to the U.S. Uh, for graduate school and they married and ultimately decided to raise their family uh, in the United States. And I'm one of three kids. I grew up in Southern California in Huntington Beach. So I grew up as a long border. And, and I was fortunate to grow up in you know middle class family with parents who were really committed to 
instilling cultural roots and values, particularly in an, an environment that had pretty relatively little diversity. And so, you know, Asian, mixed Asian background and whatnot. Yeah. I think that was an interesting experience for sure. One thing that was important growing up was to have this sense of financial independence. I think I understood pretty quickly and saw firsthand the importance of that. And so when I actually, I chose, when I say about colleges to go to, for example, I chose to go to Cal because it had, I had a full academic scholarship and, and I loved obviously what it stood for. And, um, but it was really important for me to have that independence. And so then I proceeded to work full-time through school. And so all the other students I knew that were also for various variety of reasons, having to work full-time to put themselves through school um, sort of necessitated that demand or folks that were on, you know, loans, student loans and the like, and just yeah. watching that struggle, right? I saw it firsthand. And, and that's actually interestingly, both also where I fell in love with technology. So hmm. I literally freshman year started working for Apple. During the school year, I would be <laughs> selling first generation Macs on campus. That was back in the day when, you know, they were really big in you know education and creative uh, solutions obviously they're much broader now, but back then that was really their sweet spot. Yeah. And then on the and then on the summers I'd be working out of Irvine, California, um, in their tech group. And that's when I kind of started to really fall in love with like what was technology, what role it played, its you know its applications, particularly in education at that time. And then actually my last two years of undergrad, I worked as a full time product manager uh, for a portfolio analytics software company called Bara that was founded by a couple of PhDs from Cal. Wow. Yeah. And it was really cool to be, you know, to be a female product manager. It's first my first foray into, I guess, what you call fintech, because that was a fintech company. Strangely, that business ultimately got acquired by Morgan Stanley, uh, maybe several years later. Uh, But yeah, it was it was an exciting time to get into software development, to learn what it meant to be a product manager. I started in QA and quickly pivoted to product management. And it was definitely the first um, formation of what ultimately became, you know, my passion into investment banking and then venture and so much yeah. more. But is that what you were, were you studying computer science in school or what were you, what no. were you studying? I was a math and econ major and a minor in philosophy. So <laughs> completely different. So you checked I checked all the boxes there, <laughs> left brain, right brain, back brain, front brain. That's all of it. You know, I just loved, I love the fact that at Cal, you could right pursue so many disciplines. Um, and I think, you know, the business side and the tech side grounded me in a lot of these different ways in which it gets applied um, in the real world, in quotes. But it was it was an exciting experience for sure. And there wasn't a lot of sleep, but I, I tell you, I, I made the most out of every every moment, both you know personally, but also kind of professionally. And um, so it was, it was an exciting time. And I think it really did form a lot of what I ended up doing. I would say you were talking about venture and that was definitely where in tech where I fell in love. I think, you know, my work now, and we, I know we're going to talk a bit about it probably later, but it, there, there was a going to the core value stuff. Like my parents were, you know, they came from, they were fortunate in the Philippines to come from very comfortable means um, in a country where quite frankly, it's really stratified yeah. in terms of income disparity. And, you know, my dad's side, they actually wrote, ran development banks. And so I got to see kind of, wow, financial services and its impact that it could have, particularly on SMEs, pretty early on. And my mom's side, they were like educators and, you know, healthcare professional types. So very focused on, you know, service to others and sectors that care about people and supporting others. And I think she's also, I don't know, this one, this one's an interesting tidbit, but she was a devout Catholic. And we would joke that she would have been a nun if she didn't marry my dad. So my middle name is Nativity. 
give you a sense for that. And wow. Yeah. Full on. I love it. Yeah. Well, my, my mom's a hippie and I have the middle name of sky. So the Catholics go one way, the hippies go the other. I we love all, we it. Both have, we both have very <laughs> unique middle names. It sounds like. But yes, for sure. But I mean, I think given that the whole notion of service and giving to others has always been really important. So I think for me, it's kind of fast forward. I think about after what ended up being 2016 at that point, it'd been 16 years I'd been in venture and I decided to kind of blend purpose-driven investing and venture. And to me, I think that was the overarching, like I knew I wanted to do something along those lines and, and how I could do it, how it could come together was a question for me at the time. But I think that was really the, the spirit and the influence that drove me there. Yeah, definitely. And we, we will, as you said, we will get there. I have a couple more things I'm curious about in your college life, because <laughs> I feel this sense of uh, kinship, I guess, with your college experience. Like I, I, I had at least two jobs every day through college. I mean, I played soccer for the first couple of years, but even then I was working and I like didn't tell my coach because I wasn't supposed to be working, but I needed the money. <laughs> and, and I kind of just never really had a college, like what the definition of a college experience would be for like the average person that goes to Arizona state or something like that. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, do you feel like you missed anything there? Do you feel like you missed some piece of this thing that we all societally like think we're supposed to have? Or are you, are you grateful for the fact that you just kind of worked your way all the way through it? And it sounds like learned a lot more maybe through that process. You know, I, I definitely, I was a work hard, play hard kid. So I worked okay. hard and I had a ton of fun. And, and for me, it was really about, I feel like I've always been super curious and, you know, education, you probably can attest to this, but I think, you know, you, you learn a lot in the academic setting, but so much of what we learn is what kind of in the field and to be able to do that with, I think, really interesting companies. And, you know, I joke that I remember one of my gifts back in the day when I was at Apple was the first Newton. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh my God, like to be, to watch how things like the, you know, these companies like that have evolved and, you know, the first handheld. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I just was a student, right? I wouldn't have, would have missed a lot of that, those, those learnings and working with some pretty incredible people. So, and I've always been a little bit liking an older demographic and working and being drawn to uh, those types of folks. So for me, it was just a, an added bonus. And, and I love, and the financial independence is really important. I think that's actually one of the reasons that brings me to financial services now is how important that is for people and how important it is for our sustainability. And I feel really grateful to have seen that firsthand and been part of that early on in my career and in my, my learnings of how to manage my own finances, what it meant to track budgets and yeah. how important it was. And to your point, to watch people, other students struggle so hard to do that and what that meant long-term for them in terms of their cash flow and credit and access and, and the like. So, yeah. And it sounds like it, it really drove a bit of a, a work ethic into you, right? Like if you have a number of classes that you got to get to and succeed in, and I don't know you that well, but I know you well enough to know that I'm guessing you were pretty focused on your grades. Like I graduated with pretty horrendous GPA because I studied entrepreneurship and I had kind of like the opposite point of view of, of you, honestly, which is like, I got into my class. I realized that startups are something that are just about impossible to learn inside of a classroom. And then I left immediately and my grades suffered because... I was just, just joining startups, but studying economics and some of the things that you studied, like you actually learn stuff that you can apply in the rest of your life from that. So I'm sure that, you know, <laughs> you actually paid attention in school and actually did the work outside and like built a flywheel there that, I mean, that's such a unique set of experiences going to the school you went to studying what you studied and 
working at freaking Apple through that whole experience. Like, and that was a, like the formative days of Apple, right? I'm guessing you saw some pretty wild <laughs> growth spurts, maybe some craziness. I don't know. Got a computer thrown past you by Steve Jobs or something like that. I'm guessing you got some stories from those days. Oh, it was an exciting time for sure. And, and again, like the, it's amazing just to see how that company has evolved. But yeah, <laughs> I will say that it was a great college experience. Um, and I, I feel luck, lucky to have uh, been part of this. Yeah. So transitioning from that, let's, let's get into some of like the career stuff from there. So you spent some time in investment banking and uh, kind of eventually ended up meeting Jim Barksdale and working with him and some other legends on the AOL and Netscape merger. So tell, take us up through, through that pro like through that story and what, what that was like and kind of how you fell into all that. Yeah. So I came out of undergrad and I, I knew I loved the convergence of finance and technology. And so I, you know, the, the option was to continue obviously staying on the operating side and continue in the tech side of the house or explore that convergence in a more deliberate way. And at the time people were like, well, what about investment banking? And since I wasn't part of the business school, I, that wasn't even on my radar, but sure enough, you know, people say you should start thinking about it. And by the way, you know, if you, if you love tech, I would do tech banking. And so mm -hmm the time Morgan had quite a formidable tech practice still does today. And I, I talked to a number of different firms and just fell in love with what they were doing and obviously their approach. And so, you know, nineties Sand Hill road kind of on the front front seat of the internet bubble. Yeah. <laughs> and it was spectacular. I mean, I got to tell you, I think in a lot of ways, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. I was fortunate to work with some amazing minds like Mary Meeker and Chuck Phillips on the research side. This is before the Chinese wall between my research and banking existed. So I worked very closely with them and folks like Michael Grimes and Andy Kearns on, you know, the iBanking side and and just to watch how their minds work, but probably more importantly, you know, to work, to see some of the companies, the successes and failures. So like, you know, the Keith, Keith Crocs during his first rodeo at Ariba mm -hmm. or Jim B and Peter Curry at Netscape when they did, we did the AOL merger. But I also got to witness like spectacular disasters, right? Like, you know, Lewis Borders web van, right? Or the very, very, very short-lived IPOs that I worked on with women.com and tickets.com and, you know, a myriad of others, right? So just to kind of see firsthand, like, wow, these, you know, this, what does the state of business model really mean? Like, what are true unit economics and how important are they? What does it take to be a, you know, really resilient CEO? And so anyway, incredible time. So Luckily, I was able to work with Jim B and Peter uh, Curry and Quincy Smith uh, while doing the Netscape AOL merger. And they, at the, in the meantime, were planning on spinning out a fund. So gotcha. post that merger, late 99, Jim B, Peter Curry, Quincy Smith, and Danny Reimer, um, then from H&Q, uh, formerly from H&Q as a re lead research analyst well before his index days, they launched this firm and then asked me to come out to join them. And I joined Venture January 1st of 2000. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Literally. And it was incredible because they are amazing human beings. And it was such a, it's just an incredible experience. It's one of my favorite venture experiences. It was like a small family. Yeah. And thinking through that time frame, you've seen some, some ups and some really big downs, kind of the, the music stopped playing there a little bit after you started. Right. And then the music stopped playing again. The music got really loud then after that for like seven years or something, and then it stopped playing and then it played really loud for another 10. And here we are with like some very quiet music currently, but you've seen, <laughs> you've seen some economic cycles through all that. Like I can only imagine just, do you get used to it after a certain point? Like, do you just kind of expect the music to stop at a certain point? 
maybe even a better question was like in when you started in those days in 99, 2000, like, did you just think the music was going to keep playing or did it seem out of control to you even then? You know, when I started, gosh, I was so young and so naive. I mean, I was like a sponge. I was just trying to learn everything I could. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I definitely had no idea that the bottom could bottom out like that. Clearly no one did. Right, <laughs> if, you, right. if you think about like the disastrous uh, downside there. But no, so I don't think I was worldly enough to anticipate that economic cycle being as robust as it was. I and mean, certainly, yes, at this point, we do expect the cycles to happen. We don't expect what triggers them. Certainly a pandemic would not have been one that would have been on my horizon. Right. But, you know, yeah, you do expect it. And that's part of, unfortunately, part of uh, the bull and bust. But I think it has been an incredible ride in venture to see, to see the cycles and see how we've rebounded and, and to see the different opportunities. I'm laughing at you, though, because you said right now it's a little calm. And I think it is a little calm as it relates to the pandemic. And the, but I think as it relates to fintech, I'm not sure I would characterize that as the, the calmest state or the most quiet state. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's like, yeah, it's it's very, 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 very loud. It's it's like a the inside of a disco right now, actually, when, <laughs> when you speak to that specific thing. That's true. That's a very good point. And public markets in general, right? It's like those, this whole, which kind of gets us into the flourish thing of like this disequilibrium, or not disequilibrium, but this disconnect, right, between like what's happening in the economy and then maybe like for the average American, and then what's happening in venture and then what's happening in public markets and folks that have allocations into certain companies privately and folks that have public allocations seem to be doing okay right now. Whereas, you know, the average American that flourish is actually trying to help through your investments is maybe struggling more than us sitting here on this podcast or watching day to day. Yeah. I mean, I think when the, the pandemic first hit this notion of is, it, is this a U shape or V shape recovery was really, right. you know, it was top of mind. I don't think anyone fully anticipated this K shape recovery. Yeah. And to your point, it, and it's really, truly disproportionate in terms of those who are rebounding and performing well and experiencing growth and those who are really struggling. And I think you're right. It's become more pronounced for sure. So we, we kind of hinted at it earlier with the social focus, with the economic playing together with both, you know, capitalism and actually giving a shit about how humans are doing and benefiting from the financial ecosystem we're building, which takes me to Flourish. So let's get there. What was the founding thesis of Flourish? Like, what's the story? Because I know it wasn't all it wasn't just, hey, let's do this thing. Like it kind of rolled out. The Omidyar network was involved. Like talk us through how it all came together in the early days. Yeah, well, look, I mean, as, as many folks know, Amidiar Network, so funded by Pam and Pierre Amidiar, uh, Pierre is founder of eBay, they pioneered impact investing. And as, as for those who track impact investing, it's it's a broad array of initiatives, right? It, and it, it's, it ranges from everything from grant making through to equity dollars. And this idea that you could use either part of the checkbook, so to speak, to be able to affect change and impact and then on a global basis. And that was really the thesis. And so they, they took a number of different sectors, one of which was financial services, but there were across education, emerging tech, um, property rights, civic tech across markets. So India, Africa, Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia and the US. So really broad reaching in terms of how do we think about change and, and what ways can these sectors be improved using investments in technology through grants or equity dollars. So financial services is one of the longer um, term initiatives that were underneath the umbrella, that was underneath the umbrella of Amidiar Network. And, you know, as we thought about Amidiar Network, there were, there were so much, so many different initiatives that sometimes as you think about building a brand and being very clear in your mandate and really aligning, you know, outcomes and impact and returns that you're expecting for entrepreneurs, 
it would benefit from being part of a separately brand and a separately capitalized business so that we could create all the appropriate economics and incentives to align for our outcomes because they were different as we went from sector to sector. Um, and so that was really the thought around, hey, why don't we spin this out so that we can very clearly define the brand, very clearly define the economics and the incentives, very clearly defined um, the mission. And that when we then you know, develop further portfolios and, and support and whatnot, we can really align on a singular focus. And, and that was the thought around um, formally, we've been operating as if probably for about two and a half, almost three years, but we formally spun it out last March. And against that have, you know, 500 million of capital that we're deploying globally. Um, half our capital is deployed in the U.S. and the other half is in India, Africa, Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia. And to be specific, you know, we we take our equity dollars, of which 90 percent of our fund is deployed. And we look at commercial return. So very similar to a venture mindset. But the added piece of it having to advance financial health and economic resilience, right? So this idea that can the technologies either directly, so direct to consumer type models or indirectly through infrastructure, be able to unlock meaningful technology innovation that will that we can that we can see intuitively and and actually, you know, watching the data unfold over time, that they've advancing financial health. They're actually shifting the ability for consumers to gain more income, manage expenses, fix expenses like, you know, housing, you know, education and healthcare, all of which have gone up astronomically while incomes remained relatively flat in the U.S., for example. How do you deal with retirement? How do you deal with investments if that's an option? How do you boost savings? How do you deal with credit, right? Yeah. The things that the LMI, the 70% of U.S. Americans living paycheck to paycheck are contending with every day. What are the different levers that we can shift and how we engage financial services differently to help them, right? And then all the technology underneath that, because if we can actually, you know, modernize the infrastructure, we can give that people better priced, more transparent, thoughtful, real-time you know, financial services that aid those consumers and small businesses. So that's kind of the thesis, and that's looking at the U.S. specifically, but this is a global mandate. Yeah. You know, we, we, again, as I mentioned, India, Africa, Latin America, other parts of South Asia, we, we, were, we were broad reach in terms of where we deploy and where we would like to see financial innovation advance financial health globally. Yeah, it begs a couple different questions for me because obviously this is near and dear to anyone's heart that, oh, at least from my perspective, is in fintech for the right I reason. I love that. <laughs> it's in all of this is why we should be in this industry from my perspective. But I'm curious, like on the highest level, is there any kind of true north metric that you have as a fund when it comes to social impact? And secondarily to that, is there, I guess it's more of an or, or is it an N of one thing of from company to company? Specifically, <laughs> when I think of Cushion, there's some really obvious things that Cushion has done to help consumers. You don't even need to put much thought into it, right? Like they're saving people overdrafts. It's very straightforward. It's a dollar figure that's saving people money. When you think of like Propel, they're doing an unbelievable amount to help less than average. I mean, just help people with food stamps even figure out what's going on there. There's some very obvious metrics there. So is it like a true North metric inside of Flourish or is it like N of one, each company has this kind of true North metric that you then help them kind of run after even faster? No, that's a great question. And actually, thank you so much for asking it because I think I think that is often the confusion or possibly the many interpretations of what impact could mean. Yeah. I think the way we think about it, particularly in financial services, is we're taking a systems approach. So when we say that, it means, look, 
without question, we want that in, whether that's propel or cushion or chime on its own accord to be successful, right? Because wood scale creates massive impact both to the consumers they serve as well as to the broader ecosystem. I think the importance is what is the broader ecosystem impact as well? Hmm. So Transco Chime, for example, beyond the fact that Chime on its own is success, successful, they've now crowded a number of challenger banks, right? And so cha- other challenger banks are coming in and they're coming in and they're addressing different segments of the market and they're providing different um, innovations that are addressing their core base. And that's very exciting. So even more importantly, it, they're impacting on a systems level. So what does that mean? They've not only then crowded in a number of other challenger banks, right, that are now targeting arguably their demographic, complementary demographics, and subsequently interesting innovative products that serve their base. But what they're doing at a broader level is they're inspiring the larger financial institutions who manage 90 plus percent of consumers globally to respond. And in what ways do they respond, right? In what ways do they have to contend with the fact that there's no fees, there's no overdraft fees, there's wage advance, there's credit building products. There are, pe- there are fundamentally companies that are trying to advance financial health in a meaningful way. And what does that mean for them? From a retention perspective, LTV, what role do they need to play there? And I think when we start to see that shift, materially see that shift. And we've begun to see evidence of it, right? You've seen a couple, Wells Fargo has now a no free checking account. You're mm-hmm. starting to see, certainly during the pandemic, a number of banks say, hey, we're going to waive overdraft fee for a period of time. But to really see that tip, that $34 billion overdraft fee business in the US um, go away, to us, that would be some of the systems level shifts that we'd like to see happen. So it is broader than the N. The N is a necessary condition for what we think the broader system shift needs to be to move to what we call a fair financial system. Yeah, it's like it's the it's the Tesla effect, right? Now, yeah. now Hummer is an EV, which is the most confusing thing in the world. And maybe one day, <laughs> you know, JP Morgan will also not have overdraft fees and things like that. So yeah, no, I, I love it. Listening to you talk about Chime and just kind of thinking about some of the consumer side of the fintech space, one of my favorite people to talk to about this and to hear kind of be counter to a lot of the way that people talk about it today is Ryan Falvey from the Venture Studio. And he says, basically, he tweets one thing and one thing over, over and over and over again. And it's just send me consumer facing neobanks because, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, it's played out. Chime did it. They did it. Everybody's got a debit card now. But some of the numbers that you just outlined there make it seem like there's still a lot of market share to gain. So how are you thinking about that? How does Flourish think about that? Like, are you still excited about that specific part of the space? Another great question. I mean, I, and this is, we have nine challenger banks globally now. So we, what we did early on is when we built the thesis around this need and saw this unbundling and the ability to really provide no cost, that was our original thesis. So since then, we've now globally have a number of plays and many of them are doing incredibly well um, because it is a validation of that, you know, product market fit. Mm-hmm. As we think about the hyper-verticalized challenger banks, you know, it's an interesting question. Part of me is of the mindset right now as I start to think that we're, it, it's a question of, an, is, is, it, is there an embedded finance play here or, mm. or is this a hyper-verticalized challenger bank? And I'm actually kind of inclined to think it's the former. And the reason I say that is it's not clear to me. I mean, and again, it just depends on the attributes and which hyper-verticalization makes sense. But it strikes me that there are so many incredible platforms that have already amassed trust and affinity and allegiance and high utility. And they're already there. They're engaging for a reason. There's a network and a community. 
And at that point, do we take advantage of what we know to be really meaningful kind of picks and shovels to be able to enable other relevant financial services? So not everyone's going to need a debit account, but they might really need insurance or they might really need lending products. And so to me, I feel like we're better served to think about it from an embedded finance perspective and find the right platform that we think is meaningfully impactful from Flourish Lens that then can add these other services that make a lot of sense and that are very targeted and take advantage of the data sets they have versus the other way around, which is assume that every vertical needs its own challenger bank. Um, Because it's not clear to me that on its own that that's going to bring people together, that the idea of having a shared financial relationship on its own brings the affinity groups together in as meaningful a way. Yeah. And I mean, it's shifting the cost structure of everything. The, Absolutely. Yeah. The ability for, I mean, I think listeners know I work at Bond and, you know, we're doing banking as a service and that is public knowledge. But let's talk specifically about one of your portfolio companies that I think people consider a competitor of Bond. But I think the pie is so big that we shouldn't really think of it that way. I think it's kind of like there's a lot of stand up comedians in the world and like you're allowed to like more than one of them. So anyway, now that I've given that really long preamble, (laughs) let's talk about units and talk about a tie a little bit, because I think, you know, what they're running after and what the the industry is running after is really the ability to go to a Home Depot and pick that shovel up off of a, a shelf instead of, you know, like carving down a piece of wood and forming the steel to create the shovel kind of a thing. So it's interesting. It, it almost sounds like the investing at that infrastructure layer is just going to allow for more folks to try, fail, and occasionally succeed in that area that we're talking about. And over time, consumers will benefit because somebody can stand up this net new neobank focused on small businesses that are half plumbing, half HVAC, and one third coffee shop, or, you know, like the most niche thing ever. And they can do it quickly. They can do it without having to have 17 different contracts. And if they fail, they only spent a hundred K instead of $2 million or something like that. So I, I see where you're going with like kind of the flywheel turning from this infrastructure layer instead of this brand layer. Yeah. And I feel very strongly that that is, it's that iteration that's going to be important because I think embedded finance that people have this perception, or at least I've heard that, you know, this monolithic perception. And I think there are certain markets for which, yeah, monolithic play makes sense. I mean, we're in grab financial, for example, and, you know, we've seen firsthand, right, this tightly coupled idea of commerce and community and transportation and lending and the like. And yes, under those where they basically become the bank. I think as it relates to the U.S., I think what we're trying to figure out is, look, you need to be able to ideate and you need to be able to test against it platform that aggregates consumers, like-minded consumers, what people need when. And it's not going to be clear a priori that it's debit or some natural kind of neobank functionality. What you do know is you have a data set and you've got consumer demand or SME demand and the ways in which you can really optimize that and the partners that you can enlist are going to be really important. So yes, the, the infrastructure itself is critical. I mean, you're absolutely right. There are a number of amazing players, Bond being one of them, and I think what what we got excited specifically about Unit and, and what they're doing is is they recognize that onset, maybe to some extent by watching others and, and watching where some of the challenges have had surfaced, is around the importance around compliance and saying, look, this is this is complex. Like, yeah, Home Depot doesn't know anything about a financial being a financial services um, company, nor did they want to, and they don't want to deal with the bank regulations and the workflow right. and compliance. And so someone's got to think about that up front and make it really easy to pick up that shovel. And yet still CYA, right? (laughs) And so to really make sure you do that universally in an elegant way um, and allows people to then, you're right, experiment and to really think about what products make sense is critical. And, And to me, 
that go to market and that approach is what gets us excited for sure. How much of it on that specific piece is about the company's thesis and the direction they're heading? Because right, like unit as an example, still very early, like I think we all kind of know what general direction they're going because the embedded finance wave is the embedded finance wave. But there was a lot of those companies out there, right? And you had an opportunity, I'm sure that unit was not the only banking as a service slash embedded finance, you know, deck you took a look at to be involved in. But Atai, as the human that he is, he's he's genuinely one of the most empathetic people that truly care. I really believe he cares about solving the problem, the customer or the user that they're working with, right? Whoever that brand is. But I think the thing that gets him out of the out of bed in the morning is actually like the end, end, end user, right? Like the B to B to B to C or something like that. The person that is going to increase their savings is going to be able to have a somewhat more financially healthy life. So how much of it from your perspective is, you know, the person writing the check is about the, the thesis and the, you know, direction of the idea of the company versus the founder themselves and kind of looking them in the eyes and understanding like this person is going to work their ass off to make the world a better place. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'm remiss in not mentioning that it is probably our, it's our single greatest focus, right? And, you know, when we think about, we did look at a number of amazing companies in the mass space and, and all the enablement players. And Ty is, and Duran, his CTO yep. founder, co-founder are just, are both have this just shared maniacal focus on yeah, on really benefiting and advancing the role that embedded finance can play to really help those who need it the most. I also feel like they come with such a, a deep set of experience, the humility, the discipline with which culture, their attitude about what it takes to scale a business mm -hmm. and their experience having run financial services businesses in Israel. I mean, I think all of that together were really compelling and that thirst to really do something that ultimately is going to hold. Because at the end of the day, everyone's going to scale, successful companies scale. If they don't have a true north of their own, mm -hmm. they're always going to make decisions along the way that may or may not align with that outcome. And I think you're right. Having that true north was really critical. Um, I would say the same actually of Chris Britt. Like people yeah. talk about Chime and Chris has been focused on that space and that um, segment for a long time when he was at Green Dot, right? And he understands like he wants to sell into that space to advance financial health for those consumers. And, and that like sincerity of focus is what makes then the product innovations and whatnot focus to cater that business that much more powerful. And so, yes, Itai falls in that category, Chris, and there's so many others in our portfolio. And it is, it is a really important part. And that one's actually, you can't bullshit that one. That one, you know, it's pretty, you can tell pretty clearly uh, through action through words, through his historical actions. Yeah. I mean, like one of our, one of my favorites that's in the portfolio is Propel and Jimmy Chen and he's Kansas city. And so I have extra love for him, but you sit with that guy for 10 minutes. Like, I think the first time I met him was actually at that flourish event at South by, and I had a Kansas city hat on and I was like, Oh, that's Jimmy Chen. I, I don't know. Can I go say hi to him? This is nerve wracking. <laughs> it's like, I was going to say hi to the president. Well, the president at that point was a bad example, but you know what I mean? It's like, I was going to say hi to someone who is incredibly important and Jimmy's important, but like the nicest guy in the world. And I sat down with him. We had beers. I went and visited him in Brooklyn eventually. And it's just really freaking clear that the, his life has one purpose, right? Like he feeds himself. He believes it. He exactly. Bleeds, he bleeds that. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting to me at like kind of, and I guess now I'm kind of getting more in the direction of like, 
you know, a lot of founders listen to the show that want to get funded. So maybe taking it almost to like a X's and O's direction of what's the best way for companies that are trying to solve problems like this to approach you all? Where in the lifetime do you want to meet them? You know you've written maybe a couple seed checks, but I don't know how early you're getting in. Like, give us that sense of things and maybe kind of the best best practices for apl- approaching, you know, Flourish and you specifically. Yes. Well, mission-based entrepreneurs are absolutely key and a a critical focus for us. We do do seed. We do A. We even do opportunistic Bs if we fundamentally feel like they're an inflection point where our involvement and our expertise really comes and brings to bear. But we like to come in early. We like to be able to roll up our sleeves. We like to be able to learn with entrepreneurs. And we're fortunate to work with some that have been doing this a long time and are quite seasoned with others for whom this is their first rodeo. But honestly, like they come in with that passion and focus. They come in with a sense of humility I think that's one thing that's really important. You know, startups are not for the faint of heart, right? You need to be able to have some resilience. and But you also have to understand that, you know, it doesn't define you, right? The ups and downs don't define you. And I think really having that sense of humility and purpose, I think, was has, has ended up being the secret sauce for a number of our most successful um, CEOs. And so the problems, what I can tell you for certain is that, the challenges, whether that's in the U.S. or globally, that focus on the underserved or those that are most vulnerable are large and ever-growing. I mean, we think about the U.S. like 70%. That is a massive part of our market. And so much innovation is left to really help advance and move the needle, right? And, and it really is exciting innovation. I think if we can start to really unlock not just the direct-to-consumer, but also the infrastructure, so many more exciting innovation can happen. And so just encourage you to think through, like, where do we think it's most catalytic? Where does intervention and what's a platform versus a feature, right? There's, yeah. that is a lot of what's happening in financial services right now is you're getting a lot of features and I, really thinking through how do you sustain and how do you make that choice? And I'd love to, we, my, my team much smarter than I am, trust me. We'd love to partner with, with entrepreneurs of this type. And so please feel free. You've got, you've got Zach's info. You've got mine. I'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. I will put that all in the show notes so that folks can get a hold of you. It begs the question, one of the things that I think about a lot, and then we'll kind of, I know we're a little bit over time and we'll, we'll get, we'll get to the end here, but you know, I have a hard time not asking you a lot of questions when I have you on the line. So we're going (laughs) to, we're going to do just a couple more. One of the things that I try, you know, I I wrestle with and I have like some cognitive dissonance with, and I, I just struggle with is social impact focus of something like a flourish and having to do the right thing on behalf of the LPs and having to do the right thing on behalf of the consumer, but also working in such a disjointed and misincentivized industry, right? So the chime is a good example. Like all of chimes incentives, I think line up with the customer and they're good, but there's this slippery slope during this rebundling that you kind of hinted at, right? Like the feature versus feature versus product. It's almost like a, it's almost like a, just the time frame we're in where we went from this huge unbundling to this huge rebundling. Part of that rebundling seems to be lending, right? And we're mm-hmm. seeing, mm-hmm. seeing things like Money Lion, seeing a lot of different groups that do what some would consider lending and what some regulators would consider lending, but the founders may be trying to avoid that regulator. How do you think about that world? Because it seems like such a slippery slope, especially with small dollar loans. And if you actually calculate the the monthly membership and then the tip and then the this and then the that, you're like almost at a payday loan in terms of APR, but the person needed the money. So it's like you provided a service, they 
opted into it. Like, as you can tell, based on me having this argument with myself by asking the question, I struggle with this. So I'm just curious how you think about that and how maybe Flourish is trying to kind of untangle that web of confusion. Yeah, we've been really thoughtful about lending. I think in emerging markets, it's it's pretty clear that there's a lack of formal lending. And so in that context and the ability to use cash flow and really important alternative data sets to figure out underwriting and where embedded finance, particularly for, for certain platforms, have been appropriate to really extend credit differently. And I think there we've been very successful and pretty bullish in certain domains. In the U.S., we've been pretty thoughtful about the plays we've made thus far, really keeping exactly what you defined in mind, which is what are the criteria? You know, I I think it's pretty clear whether or not we like it. If we look at the 70 percent of U.S. Americans living paycheck to paycheck, that credit is needed. And it's not, it's needed. It's it's part of people's livelihoods. They're not making enough income. They have fixed expenses. And there are times in which they need to float in between to get them to that place. And there's a lot of different innovations, right? There's everything from wage advance, there's overdraft fee, there's there's all different ways in which people are people trying to optimize expenses and payments and inflows and outflows. And all of that's important. But there is a need for float. And we can't deny that credit isn't going to be part of that situation. So then the question is, well, if credit is here... Is there a way to make it priced differently? Is there a way to actually have utility for credit? So it's not just credit that's honestly draining the hell out of these folks or or overwhelming them and their inability to then pay for it um, or ruining their credit scores. Like, can we use this credit to build credit? Can we actually help them get into a financially better situation? And so where we've looked at plays that have folks sought, like typically approach the more holistic nature of it. So a company like SeedFi, for example, a, another incredible entrepreneur. I mean, man, um, Jim McGinley has also been spending his entire career. He was at Opportune. He was at Inseek looking at, again, low to medium income, primarily Hispanic population, thinking about really innovative blending products for that consumer base. And he said, look, you know, where people are really struggling is actually just building credit. Yes, they need loans. And is there a way for us to create lending that makes sense? And let's tie it to savings because we don't want to just give lending for the sake of lending when they don't include savings habits. So can we do that? But for most of them, it's just credit building. So why don't we give them a way to actually build their credit? Why don't we give them money that they can't touch, that they have to pay back so that we can ultimately improve their credit score and get them into a better spot and a habitual spot of saving and paying on time? And and I think it's those kind of like really thoughtful interventions to figure out how do you get folks to the point where they could, when they need credit, actually be able to afford reasonable credit is, is half the battle. So that's where we've been. That's how we've been trying to approach it. Same thing with Bridget. I mean, in the context of overdraft protection, mm-hmm. for us, it was about people are aware of what they, on average, are getting charged: hundred, two hundred a month on overdraft fee going into the negative. They know that. They know that math. And so they need to be able to desert, decide: is the value prop enough to pay ten dollars a month to be able to get protection? Yep. And if the answer is yes, I mean, then they, they can make that assessment. The, the dollars are pretty clear. There's no transparent. There's no hidden fees. And now, of course, that's like part of their solution, of course, because they need to add on and they want to build more resilience. They want to think about how do you pay bills on behalf of your consumers? How do you think about break, you know, bringing some more you know, financial resilience to this consumer? Because they've now coupled deeply with the consumer. They know what about their bank. They know their cash flow. They have a lot more insight into their budgeting. And so it can't just be that. It can't just be that solution. It's just not meaningful enough and it doesn't help the consumer. They have to take a more holistic approach to it with really a credit building concept in mind. And I think in the absence of that, you're right. It's it's not 
in the interest of the consumer. And it's really hard to align incentives down the road. Yeah, but everything you just said gets me so excited. This is, I'm such a nerd, but the future <laughs> of secured cards, right? Like the future yeah. of a secured credit card is like, it's so exciting. It, for me, it used to be this just very boring thing. It's a secured credit card. But the more founders I talk to on a daily, weekly basis, like I feel like it's kind of not hit the zeitgeist of the Twitter fintech karate nerds quite yet, but it seems to me like one of these next waves is really going to be like nuanced and differentiated secured cards that play a little bit of this kind of like pedal cash flow underwriting thing, but at the mm-hmm. same time, actually, like you said, have that savings aspect and bring it all together in this beautiful thing that actually benefits the human and also is economically feasible for the company. So I get a little giddy listening to you talk about that because it sounds like if you're walking the tightrope that actually does both without ending up as, you know, a quasi payday lender by accident. It's, it's a fascinating trend that I really hope actually, this is the first trend that I actually hope I'm right about. Well, I guess I hope I'm right about everything, but it's not, (laughs) doesn't happen often. So I I really hope that this one works out the way that I even kind of hope because it could legitimately change the face of American society, not just American economy, I think. This is the reality of the world we live in. And so really trying to think about how do we create these products that could meaningfully have impact? I mean, in an ideal world, you know, you know, people talk about, well, let's get rid of credit. Well, I think credit serves a purpose too. It's just a question of could we create transparent, thoughtful, or, you know, priced credit and visibility, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. consumers are having a hard enough time paying paycheck to paycheck, you know, they need to be able to understand what those costs really are, those underlying costs and that ability for transparency is critical in this as well. Yeah, and that's we really don't, one of the many issues with, you know, payday lenders and, and the like. So totally. I mean, I think if we didn't have credit, then like we would only have like half of the Jay-Z songs that we have today. Like he, <laughs> that man alone has shown the world the importance of credit through his lyrics. So we whoever said get rid of credits just tripping like we need credit <laughs> as a society. How else do you think people build wealth anyways? That is really interesting. And now you have my wheels turned in some really interesting ways. But I know that we are kind of coming up on time and we are, of course, going to have to do this again at some point because I just love talking to you. But our last couple of questions really are kind of just a little bit of a commercial for you. The first one is what can the For Fintech Sake audience do to help you? You know, a lot of founders, regulators, bankers, fintech nerds of all stripes. Is there anything that the listener base could be doing to support you as an individual or support Flourish? We love perspective. We love insight. I think, you know, we're not we're not living in a silo. So much of what we what we bet on, what we're passionate by is informed through the ecosystem. And so hopefully when you come across things, when you come across ideas, when you have questions around some of the areas that we've been actively involved in, we'd want to reach out. We need to hear from you. I feel like that's so important. And it informs our thinking about trying to make this impact greater. And there's a lot that are probably uh, blind spots that we don't see either that, again, you guys are so much closer to. Um, and so would love and welcome that. Keep us honest. And then in terms of opportunities, again, like-minded entrepreneurs, um, diversity, right? I think... I just can't underscore how important it is in this day and age for us as an as an ecosystem to really in financial services and entrepreneurism to really embrace diversity in a meaningful and deliberate and intentional way. And that happens not just from hiring, it happens through mentorship, it happens through being very active in that dialogue and being intentional. And so anyway, you think we can play a role and help or partner with you in some of those initiatives, we'd be 
we'd be honored to do. And I would just love to encourage you all to also take that role on and take that mantle because I think it doesn't happen without a lot of work and a lot of effort and a collective effort and commitment. That is an inspiring note to end on. And the listeners can probably guess, even though they can't see me, I should say, but I'm nodding my head voraciously up and down in agreeance with you a hundred percent. I really hope folks reach out to you and kind of start those conversations. And I know a lot of more diverse founders that do listen to this podcast. Uh, luckily, a couple of them have been able to raise recently, like shout out to Navit that just closed their seed round. And shout out to First Boulevard, who just closed a pretty damn big $5 million seed round here out of Kansas City with P72. So a couple close friends that are doing things for the world that are not just finance for white men. So let's build more (laughs) of that. I don't need another robo advisor in my life. I need more of that. So (laughs) wonderful way to end. What is the best way for folks to get in touch with you? You kind of hinted at it earlier and best way to kind of find out more about Flourish, maybe the website, wherever you want to point folks. I'm Emmalyn at flourishventures.com. That's E-M-M-A-L-Y-N. And our website is flourishventures.com. And obviously we've got all, all the Twitter and LinkedIn handles as well. And look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you so much. Beautiful. I'll put it in the show notes and I hope people reach out. Emmalyn, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for the time. And I'm excited to do it again, hopefully sometime later this year, next in person. Look forward to it. Thanks again for your time. Take care. Of course. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For FinTech's Sake with Emmalyn Shaw of Flourish Ventures. I've included pertinent links to find Emmalyn and learn more about Flourish in the show notes. As I said in the beginning, this episode was brought to you by vSum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. Just jump in there. Little five star, little review. Doesn't take long. Just just real quick. Just just come on for me, please. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and keep your eye on the crypto markets. It's quite a time to be alive.